Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. You ever think about quitting? It's the combat of life hammering the snot out of you. Well, stand by, dig in deep, and get ready to get fired up with us. Welcome to the Team Never Quit podcast, the number one podcast that inspires you to fight on. I'm your host, David Rutt Rutherford, here with Mr. Never Quit himself, Marcus Luttrell. Our mission is to help you embrace the suck of life, to teach you the values of working your ass off, and to interview the most hard-charging people on planet Earth. We know life is hard. It's time for you to suck it up, buttercup, and let us teach you to persevere in every environment imaginable by sharing real-world lessons learned by those who never quit. That's right. It's time, Marcus, for us to help them defeat the well, negative you insurgency me up, man. in their lives. You fire me up. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's roll. Let's roll. Dirty deeds done dirt cheap. Dirty deeds done dirt cheap. Marcus Luttrell, what's the worst job you ever had? Worst job. Go. Oh, shingling a house in the summertime. In Texas? Yep. Oh, that's horrible. Maybe throwing hay in West Texas, but I was young, so All right, thinking now about t- it now sucks <laughs> even worse, but I'd have to say I never did it, but laying asphalt road out in West Texas in the summertime would probably be the most miserable. No, the one. what? It's You've got one my, you my did. Personally, one, oh, shingling a uh, Shingling roof. What made it suck so bad? It had rained the day before, and they didn't cover the... The bags with the tarp, so they were all wet and saturated. <laughs> how little bitty we were in high school. Me and Mojo. Right. And it didn't have that fancy ladder deal or whatnot. We had yeah. to carry, carry the bags up the ladder. Right. <laughs> and we, I would get about halfway up, them bags start splitting, and 
and the shingles would fall oh, out. I'll never forget Morgan was standing underneath me and the shingles was falling out. I mean, <laughs> ripping us apart, bro. Yeah. And the guy who we were out there working for, he was laughing. I mean, he, he can carry five of them up there at the same time. <laughs> but it took us all day to get those bags up. Every one of them would rip. And I think there's one part Morgan was like, man, just let me go. <laughs> <laughs> just let me go. Just let me go, baby. All right, right Wizard. Singles. Your worst job you ever had? Oh, let's see. I worked in uh, I worked in the body shop in Je- in Lordstown Assembly Plant, building cars for General Motors, and the monotony oh. drove me crazy. Three models of cars, and they'd come along. I got to the point where I was hanging several jobs, but the one my favorite, my least favorite, was hanging gas doors. And it involved this whole process where you had a form and different nuts and rivets and a torque gun and all this stuff. And I would, you'd get so bored, I would close my eyes, identify the car it's moving down the line by touch, go back to my station, pick up all the equipment I needed, go find the car again, mount the gas door, and repeat over and over and over and see how many I could do in a row. With your eyes closed? With my eyes closed. That would drive me insane. Yeah, there might oh, be a few God. mismatched uh, gas doors on... Chevrolet products. From, That's from some the, of the most impressive things to watch 90s. on on YouTube is people <laughs> proficient at their job, like just what they're capable of. See where the boxes are coming over those two ladies yeah. are sitting there and they're not even looking; they're just stacking the boxes yep. up, and the, especially the cooks. Yep, man. At, and on that assembly line, I bet you get to where you can just and next. <laughs> you gotta do something to keep your mind occupied. Oh my god, sure. mine distributing beer dude i worked on the beer trip my cousin the thesis they owned the beer distribute the miller distributorships from like vero all the way down in key west and so they gave me a summer job before i went to college man and mm-hmm. i worked on the beer trucks and you had to be in there at 4 30 in the morning you got the manifest and then so i'm thinking you know i love to drink i love to party this is gonna be epic you know you go to a bar you take in a couple cases you have a couple pops all day on the beach in fort lauderdale you can't beat this right <laughs> no you could beat it by far it was horrific dude Summertime, South Florida, full uniform, polyester, hauling on on grocery days, on Publix days, we'd take in 1,500, 2,000 cases of beer. Gotta, you also had to build That's the, a great work. The pallets. You had to stack the pallets. Right? Right? Morgan right. did that with Coca-Cola one summer, oh! and he said it was the same thing. He's Horrific, <laughs> dude. Hard work. And so, like, I, instead of it being done in half the time, I'd do the whole thing, right? And the worst were where you go into the back areas in the in the supermarkets where they uh-huh. wouldn't have, you know, where some other dude, some other distributors were like Budweiser or someone else. They took your spot and just stacked your. So they're like, hey, bro, you got to go in there and move all their stuff over there. <laughs> then you got to put your stuff in there and then you got to go and stack the fridge. And I'd be like, what? Wait, what? Oh, bro. It well, was horrible. I got a bad stacking story. You were talking about bailing hay and trying to be on a wagon before, you, before you're big enough to keep up with whoever's driving the tractor because it's spitting it off on the baler. You're too big to pick these bales up with one hand, and you're sweating in the summertime, and you're cut up from all the hay. It's like having a million grass cuts on you. That's <laughs> some hard work. Oh, bro. There. I mean, you think about how many hard, debilitating jobs there are in this country that makes our country function. It's nuts, dude. Yeah, well, we know somebody who's uh, seen a fair share of them. And that's why <laughs> he is coming on this show, baby, because the guy right. who's coming on today, 
Mr. Dirty Jobs himself, Micro, could be. I mean, I have been, dude, I have been hounding them for like a year. And what's crazy is, dude, I, you know, apparently like right when I sent in the first one, Marcus, like a year ago, it came right back. They're like, oh, dude, he totally wants to do the show. But the guy is doing in a sewer pipe right now. Yeah, he's in his yeah, yeah right. he's in a sewer the pipe. Is- <laughs> right, right. Wait till he does like uh 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 dirty jobs around the world. <laughs> oh, uh, you imagine? Oh, oh no. where where they're still where they're still doing jobs from like two hundred years ago, right? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the TNQ. Dirty Jobs Show. No, just kidding. Welcome to the Team Never Quit Podcast. I'm your host, David Rutt Rutherford. I'm here with Mr. Never Quit himself, Marcus Luttrell, and the Wizard. Thank you. Is that Ex- cool? Did Exorcist kind of. Yeah, right? Yeah, That's uh, what I was going Thank with? you, brother. Thank you for acknowledging that. I was, I was, <laughs> I was tapping into some dark places on that, dude. Boy, she freaked me out in that movie, man. Did you see? Oh. Because we. we Head goes I saw down. it when I was a kid. kid. You know, the babysitter let us watch oh. it when my parents were out. Once, Bro. Messed me up. Dude, forever. <laughs> to this day, I think that's the only scary movie I've ever seen. Ugh. The Shining? You well, haven't seen The one. Shining, dude? Red Rum, great, Red Great Rum. movie, not, really? not truly scary, in my opinion. My dude, opinion. Yeah, man, if you go back and watch me. that head twisting around, yeah. it looks fake. Uh-huh. You don't forget that. Well, when she comes down the stairs upside down. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the day. But I digress. Welcome to the TNQ podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. If this is your first time out with us, man, God bless you. We are so stoked. This is going to be a treat for you. This show is going to be awesome. You are going to learn stuff you can't even imagine about the Never Quit mindset right now. If you're a repeat offender, God bless you. Right, Marcus? Yeah. I mean, seriously. We're genuine podcasters right now because of them. Can you believe that? This is our job. <laughs> Talk about great jobs. They didn't even have that listed on a form most of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that was an option. You know, is I mean, that you, you option? Yeah, what do you want to be when you grow up? Remember yeah, the school yeah, yeah, days? Yeah, yeah. With, with a guidance counselor? <laughs> yeah. This wasn't on there. No, it didn't <laughs> exist. Because there was radio show host, but you had to, you know, oh, whole you know, different. Had, you had to have the Mike Rowe voice. Yeah, you did. But us, we can do whatever. That's what I love. I love the freedom of it and the opportunities that we have to be able to bring these incredible guests on to share with you, our listeners, to help you overcome obstacles, to face adversity, to knock the negative insurgency right square in its nose, and to stay in the fight, man, to find something of meaning in your life so you can make a difference, so you can have passion in what you choose to do for a living, man, and and that's what this show is all about. If you want to know more about us, don't hesitate. Go to tnqpodcast.com, visit the site, You'll be able to see our entire back catalog of shows and da- and listen right there. And you'll also find out why we're doing it. We have this great community built in. And if you, f- if you get a wild hair, man, we would love it if you wrote in and shared your greatest never quit story, baby. Because mm-hmm. I'll tell you what. The, how many Wizard, we are starting to compile a huge community of those now, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, we're somewhere around like... 15 pages of stories on the website right now. It just grows every day. Oh, my God. So 
Go there. Tell us your greatest never quit. Hell, tell your greatest never quit story about your grandfather, your father, your uncle, your mom, your sister, your aunt, your uncle, your brother. We don't. Yeah, there's no age limit on this one. No. Anybody. We don't care. Share these great never quit stories about the people that had the greatest impact on you and your life that taught you the never quit mindset. Because, man, that's what we're trying to build here is that epic community. All right. Uh, if you're fired up and you really dig us, man, we got some epic new T-shirts and other swag for you. So don't hesitate to go there. We would love your support. You buy swag. those. Swag. Great swag. Word. Swag. 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 Some people got more swag than others. Oh, man, we got swag for you. All right. Uh, Also, if you want to (laughs) follow us, we finally could talk the wizard into getting on social media. People stalking you down, bro. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's the wizard TNQ. Search that. You'll find him. You can follow me at Team Frog Logic. And, of course, Mr. Never Quit himself at Marcus Luttrell. Okay. Okay, baby. Let's get that. We... Oh, man, this is epic, bro. Are you ready? Are you ready? I've been excited about this since you first said that Mike wanted to come on. Dude, right? You same, Mark? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. He's just, there's something about him that just he's, you know. I catch myself watching the Showtime sometimes, not even paying attention to what he's doing. I'm just listening to him talk. He was like, (laughs) yeah. He's got one of the coolest voices ever. Like, it makes you want to listen because you know he's going to tell you something cool. Yeah. Right? Exactly. You know he's got cool stories because the way his voice sounds. Oh, that, that's why I love his <laughs> that podcast. Work? That's why man. I got him in that way, right? Yeah, voice because he knew he was gonna have cool stories. <laughs> well, or did he have the voice and realize he needed to go get cool stories to utilize the voice? No, def- Marcus definitely had it right. Yeah, yeah. that's just blow me away on that one. Man. <laughs> you know, I got hard enough time keeping up as it is. <laughs> All right, Wizard, let's get a bio on this man, please. Yeah, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna. Uh, um, unabashedly plagiarized right from his bio because God bless it's just written really well. And I'm going to read it, and you're going to be entertained. <laughs> Mike Rose, the TV host, writer, narrator, producer, actor, and spokesman. His performing career began in 84 when he faked his way into the Baltimore Opera to get his union card and meet girls, both of which <laughs> he, accomp- he accomplished during the performance of Rigoletto. His transition to television occurred in 1990 when, in order to settle a bet, he auditioned for the QVC Shopping Channel and was promptly hired after talking about a pencil for nearly eight minutes. There, he worked the graveyard shift for three years, also being fired three times, mainly due to making fun of the products and belittling viewers. Thanks to QVC, Mike became practiced in the art of talking for long periods of time without saying anything of substance at all, a skill that would serve him well as a TV host. Throughout the <laughs> 90s, Mike had hundreds of jobs, relishing his role as a chronic freelancer with lots of time, to loaf around. Then, through a horrible miscalculation, he pitched a three-hour special to, to the Discovery Channel, which ended up resulting in the show Dirty Minds. Dirty Minds? Where's <laughs> your fucking head at? He's going, dude. He's been away from his lady for 70 days, bro. That's right. 70 days. Okay, actually, getting close to 90 days. 90. Anyway, he pitched a three-hour special to the Discovery Channel that ended up Resulting in the show I Dirty Jobs. you snapping at everybody the whole damn week. <laughs> <laughs> there are reasons for this. Uh, viewers liked it. Viewers liked it, and Discovery responded by ordering 39 episodes, a shocking commitment that Mike was contractually obligated to honor. For the first time in his career, Mike went through went to work with a vengeance. 
Over the next decade, Mike would become known as the dirtiest man on TV. He traveled to all 50 states, completed 300 different jobs, transforming cable television into a landscape of swamps, sewers, ice roads, coal mines, oil derricks, crab boats, hillbillies, and lumberjack camps. For this, he received both credit and blame. Looking for a simpler way to make the rent, Mike went to seek out opportunities that didn't require multiple showers. He narrated hundreds of documentaries about space, nature, war, serial killers. If there's a wildebeest getting eaten alive by a lion, it's probably Mike that's going to be telling you about it. (laughs) As a public speaker, he's routinely hired by Fortune 500 companies to frighten employees with stories of maggot farmers and sheep castrators. And when Madison Avenue came calling, Mike said, sure, and has since since filmed over (laughs) approximately one million Ford commercials. Eventually, Mike was overcome by a strange desire to give something back. On Labor Day of 2008, he launched MicroWorks, a PR campaign designed to reinvigorate the skilled trades. He's since written extensively about the country's relationship with work, the widening skills gap, offshore manufacturing, infrastructure decline, currency devaluation, and several other topics for which he has actually no credentials. (laughs) In May of 2011, he testified before the U.S. Senate Commerce Committee, about the importance of changing perspectives and stereotypes around blue-collar work, and was asked back to testify again by the House uh, in 2014. He runs the Mike Rowe Works Foundation, which awards scholarships to students pursuing a career in skilled trades. He is closely associated with Future Farmers of America, Skills USA, the Boy Scouts, um, and he actually himself earned Eagle Scout uh, as a young man. He was the top Eagle Scout. He was the top Eagle yeah, Scout? Yeah, I think he was the top Eagle Scout. He got awarded that. Really? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And Forbes has identified Mike as one of the country's top, one of the country's ten most trustworthy celebrities in 2010, 11, and twelve. Now, just three things that he's currently working on because he has a resume that goes on for miles in in his yeah um, latest TV stuff. and narration and all this stuff. But Hit what he's doing right too, now, baby. Hit the numbers. All right. So right now, his TV show. Some, uh, somebody's got to do it. It's in its second season. It's a blockbuster success. It brings viewers face-to-face with men and women who march the beat of a different drum, paying honor to innovators, do-gooders, entrepreneurs. It's just a show about purpose, passion, and occasionally hobbies that get out of control. He's uh, on Returning the Favor. This is a, a Facebook watch uh, phenomenon. It's at over 226 million views, featuring people who give back to their communities. And he has a a really interesting podcast, uh, The Way I Heard It. It's titled The Way I Heard It. It's for, as it says here, the curious mind with a short attention span. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, it'll soon release its 100th episode, and it's been downloaded over 60 million times at this point. Dude, that's massive, bro. Because it's his voice, dude. I'm telling you. And it, he brings just positive content to people. He's a positive dude. Even what I love is when he gets attacked online for supporting certain things. And, you know, the haters out there, I mean, you get slayed by them all the time. But but he keeps this positive spin about it, man, and mm-hmm. keeps bringing people back to the center of what's important and what makes America strong. I love him, man. You're on point, man. It's, it's, it's a unique perspective that he has. I can't wait to hear it. It's awesome. What do you say? Let's bring Old Mike Rowe on the show, baby. Do dirty it. Deeds Done Dirty. Now 
Now, Marcus, I'm going to tell you, brother, you and I and the Wizard, we have been in some dirty spots. We have been, you know, we've sucked in so much fecal particulate downrange in both Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, hell, the stuff we've had to do, the the harbors we've had to dive in. But I'm telling you what, brother, (laughs) this guy today who's coming on takes that whole concept to a whole nother level. And he knows he, he's not one of the guys who just sits out and says, wow, that looks horrible. He gets in the muck. He's in the filth. And what I love most about him, brother, is this guy cares about the dude that does it day in and day out, bro. Yeah, does it with a smile on his face. That's crazy. Um, if, you, if you're not laughing, guys, the joke's on you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, uh, welcome to the Team Never Quit podcast, Mr. Dirty Jobs himself, Mike Rowe. My God, that was beautiful, Dave. I hope I can give an interview half as worthy as the introduction you've just given me. <laughs> that's a hell of a compliment coming from him. That is one of the greatest ones I've ever had, that's for sure. <laughs> we'll make it into a ringtone for you and send it over. <laughs> oh, great. He's like, I great. was just joking. Uh, well, sir, I can't even begin to uh, tell you, we've all been so excited. You know, we've been working hard with your guy Chuck for about a year to get Get you on. Uh, we understand, man, how busy you are, how much good you're doing in the world. So for you to come on and join us to help support our our listeners and the people who are struggling out there, we just can't thank you enough, sir. Look, all I can say is, uh, A, you're welcome, and B, the privilege is mine. I've wanted to do this from the first time you guys reached out, but you know the drill. It's 10 oh, yeah. pounds of crap in a five-pound bag, and we're running <laughs> in a thousand different directions, and it's just hard. It's, it's, it's so crazy how, how difficult simple things become um, when, <laughs> when you get a little lucky. And all of a sudden, you're just, you're, you're just that guy, you know, yeah. calling in from airports and writing stories on planes and really living in the cracks. I'm not complaining, but it's just a hell of a thing that you really can never, uh, you can never anticipate. But next thing you know, you know, there you are in the middle of the day on the phone with, uh, with, with three heroes. And it's, uh, it's really a thrill for me. So let's, uh, Let's be fascinating together, shall we? Uh, yeah, hello. Let's be fascinating together. All right, all right, all right. So, in order to be fascinating, we first have to get warmed up a little. We gotta, we gotta stretch out. We gotta, we gotta dig in. And and I gotta tell you, of all of our guests so far, you're the one that I'm. You know, after I read the whole thing about you on QVC and and being able to talk for eight minutes about a pencil, I was like, there is no a man after <laughs> my own heart. That's what he said. My God. God, it's me. <laughs> I'm like my. That's you're was, like my. It was role. a hell of a pencil, Dave. It was a hell of a pencil. <laughs> you're like my total role model in my life now to be able to do that. And, and so you know, in order for us to get in, we've got to start out, get a little rapport, get a little uh, a welcoming to you by doing the mad minute with you. So if you if you're ready, if you're fired up, we're gonna we're gonna jump in. Let's do it, man. Uh, Whatever it is, it sounds fantastic. <laughs> All right, Marcus Luttrell, go ahead and start out. Fire away. All right, brother, a movie character you'd like to play out in real life for a day. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm going to go with Winston Churchill, as long as I get to pick the day. Oh, yeah, for sure. You mean 
me for a whole day or or any day in his life? Any day in his life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I would have to think being Winston Churchill, like the day after Dunkirk, oh. would have been amazing knowing you got those guys mm-hmm. out. But um, you know what? Is this like mm-hmm. a multiple choice thing? Can I give you another one? Too? Yeah, oh, oh, it's a free for all. Go. So there's a character called Travis McGee that was made famous by an author named John D. McDonald. And he appears in 20 different Pulp Fiction mysteries. And back in the huh. 70s, uh, they made a movie about this guy. Sam Elliott played oh, the, yes. the, the main role. But Travis McGee uh, is a guy who I based my entire business model on. And I just... He's one of my favorite characters of all time. Sadly, he's fictitious, but I love the guy. He lives on a houseboat, and he basically is sort of like a mercenary that people hire who have been swindled, and he goes and he gets their stuff back, and he, and he keeps half because he's a mercenary. Right. But he's uh-huh. just – it's such a great character, and it broke my heart because it was such a shitty movie. But the books are so <laughs> terrific that if you take anything – I don't know what we're going to talk about over the next hour, but if your listeners love to read, read uh, The Deep Blue Goodbye by John D. McDonald, starring Travis McGee. You'll love it. Dude, what? That's awesome, man. Yeah. Uh, hey, don't, don't we know a guy who's actually do who's a contractor, lives on a houseboat? Isn't that tiny, I think? <laughs> Everybody right. knows right. the guy. Yeah, right? Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right, wizard, fire away. All right, Mike, give us one job that you would assign to your arch enemy, assuming you have an arch enemy. We did, uh, we did 300 dirty jobs over nine years when we were in production. Wow. And there's only one um, that I would never do again. And I guess uh, that would be the answer to your question. If I really wanted to put somebody through the ninth level of, of hell... I would send them to Cooper Pedy, Australia, in the middle of the outback, and have them mine for opals. Oh. Mining for opals. <laughs> this is such a... This job, I mean, you were talking about feces from every species before crawling through the muck, <laughs> diving in the crap. I, I get all that. You know, we've done that. You guys have been there and done it. But mining for opals requires you to be lowered on a bosun's chair into... Uh, a shaft the size of a manhole that's 80 feet deep. Oh, and, oh, wow. And as you're slowly lowered into this pit of despair, your job is to look for traces of opal, which typically occur between uh, deposits of sandstone and soapstone about 60 feet down. And if you find it, uh, then they haul you up and they dig another hole and you keep verifying the vein and then you eventually dig out the hillside and then you get rich you know, collecting right. opals, but the, but the huh. business of finding opals in the 128 degree <laughs> oh outback God. being lowered into these awful claustrophobic pits, guys, when you're, when you're 80 feet down standing on the bottom of this shaft, looking up the, the aperture at the top is just a, it's, it's like a pinhole. It's just a little piece of blue and the mm-hmm. dirt is touching your shoulders. Oh. And the only upside is it's cool. But, you know, you know, every year they don't fill these holes in, right? So ostriches and kangaroo, they're, they're always falling in these, in these holes. And there are thousands of them. Oh, really? And two days before I got there, a tourist fell in. Ugh. 
when it, he was taking a picture of the moron and he backed up and he fell in head first, broke his shoulder, uh, uh, broke his, uh, his leg and, and, and stayed there upside down in the bottom of this shaft for 70 hours. Oh my um, God. Wow. When they, when they hauled him out, finally, um, he lived, but he was unable to speak and never got his voice back. He was so traumatized. Oh yeah. No, no, that's good. That's, that I'm not doing that one. No, you just don't do it. <laughs> just just saying no. that one. Sometimes, I will... guys, sometimes it's okay to quit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on that one, I would, I would ring out in a heartbeat on that one. Like, <laughs> I mean, holy <laughs> cow! All right, here's a question wow. now. One of the coolest things I found was that I found out that you went to Overly High, and <laughs> my best friend from Penn State that I I play lacrosse with, he was from Overly, and we would go down down there and we would eat crabs all the time so what is the best place to eat crabs in the baltimore area wow all right so you got a place called uh obrecki's which has been there for about a thousand years and uh they still do a great job because they don't go out of control with the filler what you want is backfin from a maryland blue crab you don't want the claws and you don't want yep. the filler and you don't want the bread you want calinectus sabatus Latin for for Chesapeake blue crab, <laughs> and you want it. Uh, you want them broiled. You want them about the size of a baseball. Uh, you want it with some uh, corn on the cob, maybe. And uh, as you eat it, you just want to uh, congratulate yourself for ordering the <laughs> finest food available <laughs> on planet Earth. Now, if you're not gonna go, if you're not gonna go with a crab cake, you know, and if you're just gonna go with the crabs themselves. Well, then you can also congratulate yourself because you've ordered the perfect food because it's difficult and yes. delicious. You can't eat crabs fast. You've got to crack them open. These things are nautical Rubik's cubes, right? <laughs> and they're just filled with thousands of little compartments of delectable meat. And you can either eat as you go or you can stack the meat up on the side. All you have to really do is make sure you're drinking National Bohemian beer <laughs> while you're cracking Daddy the crabs Bo. on newspaper. Uh, and look, my mother, you know, she's a very, very particular woman. She's very sophisticated, but when she eats crabs, it's like she's a drunken crack whore, right? <laughs> the, 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 the food's flying through the air, it's stuck in her hair. My father says you can learn everything you need to know about a person by the way they eat Maryland blue crabs, and I believe the old man is correct. 100 percent wow oh, that, oh that my sounds God. good uh, i'll take one yeah right right yeah. Marcus, you gotta think about it in terms of uh, the old bay seasoning too right so these things are covered in old bay and when you eat them you're going to cut your hands it's guaranteed and the old bay gets into <laughs> the gonna cut burn. and it stings so freaking bad you you'll whimper but it tastes so good <laughs> you can't help but keep eating and so that's the kind of balance of pleasure and pain that, that ultimately has defined my career. And, I, and I, I, I firmly encourage your viewers, as they're reading Travis McGee, to eat Maryland blue crab oh, and wrap awesome. themselves in the warm embrace of cognitive dissonance. <laughs> Euphoria warm, between the tears. The warm embrace. 
face and hey, talking we, to oh, dissidents. I, I'm just going to think about the, the waiter, his voice. I mean, because if you were standing above me telling me about today's special, I'd have got whatever, everything you just talked about. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I just, that's where I zoned out. So I was like, man, we're here right now. That's real good. Yeah, my I'll mouth is watering yeah, right now. All, all right, Marcus, fire away. That was epic. <laughs> Best dive bar. <laughs> wow. There's a place in San Francisco called Grumpy's. It's one of a thousand dumps that I love. <laughs> and the reason I love Grumpy's is because uh, in 2001, I was working for, uh, for CBS, and, uh, and I had an idea for a segment called Somebody's Got to Do It, which awesome. ultimately led to dirty jobs. And I, I went down to Grumpy's to, uh, to write it down so I could present it properly to my boss. And it was just, it's one of those bars where your, where your feet stick to the, uh, yes. the floor just a little, where you can throw <laughs> peanut shells on the ground, uh, where you can order a decent hamburger and drink draft beer. You can sit inside or outside. You can throw darts. And uh, it's just a weird mix of pirates and hippies and <laughs> pretty much everything you want in a dump. Oh, God bless Grumpy's, hey, man. I'm going, not, dude. Who's not allowed in the other bars? <laughs> yeah, right? Where's that place? That's yeah, Grumpy's. That's Grumpy's. Yeah, we're there. All right, Wizard, fire away. Give us one of your favorite quotes. All right. Well, in the interest of uh, Travis McGee, he said in one of the early books, be wary of all earnestness. Ooh. And, um, mm. you know, I never gave it a lot that's of thought at mind. the time, but... As I got older, I realized earnestness is is it's different than sincerity. It's it's sort of the thing you do if you need to fake it. Right. So, you know, newscasters mm. are earnest, or at least they appear that way. Right. Um, pitchmen like me, you know, <laughs> I, I can be earnest if I need to. Um, the viewer and the listener should always be wary of people who say things like, you know, well, if I'm being honest. Or can I tell you the truth? Because the, tr the truth is they probably can't. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to go with be wary of all earnest. Or, you know what? Henry Ford had a good one. He said, chop your own wood. It'll warm you twice. Nice. Nice. Oh, I dig that. I love that one. That's cool. I love it. That is epic yeah. right there. I watched that man. Ford documentary the other day. I remember that quote. It was that's pretty good, sharp. Isn't yeah, it? That's good stuff. That's a good one. All right, Marcus. Last last question. Fire away. Favorite superhero. I always thought Wonder Woman was kind of hot. <laughs> Especially <laughs> dude, now, dude, Gal Gadot. Got, man, yeah. she does such a great job. Get it on. <laughs> man. Was terrific. Oh my you know, god! There's something about that lasso, the lasso of truth. You know, <laughs> I mean, the superheroes are all the rage, and yeah, it'd be great to fly, and it'd be great to be invisible, and all that other stuff. But man, how handy would it be just to wrap half the characters up who are running the country right now in the lasso of truth? Oh, and, amen. Uh, and get hmm. them talking. Amen to that, Mike. That would. That's. I think that's the majority of America's quest right now. That would be the greatest. The greatest battle of all day to get everybody to actually start talking to each other and talking with the truth, man. Dude, all right. I, I would I, I would actually dress like Wonder Woman if I could have the last word. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know what we're sending you, buddy. I know what we're sending to yeah. micro work. Stand by to stand by. <laughs> awesome. 
Well, that is the mad 11 minutes. And, uh, man, no, I'm telling you, those my my opinion, best dancers we've ever had. So thank oh, you, you, sir. Oh, you flatter me. Being earnest. Yeah, being I'm being earnest. earnest. Wait, earnest. that's tight. That's He's not being what... earnest. Yeah, be wary of that. <laughs> Watch that. <laughs> they always say that about yeah. me, Mike. All right. <laughs> All right, so we appreciate it, but now it's time. Let's let's pivot a little bit, and 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 obviously the reason why people come to the Team Never Quit podcast is because they're facing some adversity. They're they're trying to figure out how to get over those obstacles, whether you know it, it's uh, some kind of trauma in their life, or it's they're unhappy at their job, or you know just life isn't going the way that they had hoped it would. And so they come here to hear our guests tell their incredible stories about about perseverance, about grit, you know, managing the pain of life with a smile on their face. So, Mike, without further ado, sir, would you please share your greatest never quit story or stories with our listeners? Well, aside from the fact that it took me a year to actually get on your show you know, regarding <laughs> perseverance, that's up there. I stuck with it. Now here we are. We appreciate but, that. Um, <laughs> you know, I guess I'll tell you a good one, uh, but I should preface it by saying from, you know, my whole career from that crazy run at QVC all the way up until 2001 when I pitched Dirty Jobs was actually, you know, it was kind of based on quitting. This is sort of a confession. I, I, quitting's probably the wrong word, but my business model uh, didn't require me to swing for the fences. You know, I was a I was a percentage hitter, and I was a host. You know, mm -hmm. I impersonated uh, experts on television. That was my job. <laughs> you know, so I was I was I was pretty good at it. You know, after after three years of selling crap in the middle of the night on QVC. I was able to create the illusion of uh, expertise and competence in short bursts, which is exactly what you need to do if you want to freelance in nonfiction. So I hosted shows and did horrible infomercials for a long time and typically looked for projects that were so poorly conceived and such bad ideas on their face that no amount of luck or talent could possibly save them. So I would attach myself to these turds and get paid <laughs> for doing what I do. And then two or three weeks later, you know, the whole thing would crap the bed and it would be canceled or, you know, because none of these shows deserve to work. And long story short, I found a way to uh, prosper. I mean, I wasn't killing it, but I was comfortable with failure because I really didn't care too much wow. about the fame. Well, all of that went out the window uh, in 2001, when uh, when my mother called me at CBS, where I was working at the time, and said, "Look, your uh, your grandfather is dying. He was oh, 92, man. and you know he was my idol. He built the house I was born in without a blueprint. He uh, he only went to the seventh grade. But the guy, you 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 probably know people like this. You mm -hmm. probably are people like this. You know, you could take a watch apart and put it together blindfolded." He could, uh, you know, he was a master electrician, steam fitter, pipe fitter, welder, mechanic. He just had that chip, you know, right. that that allowed him to fix anything. And um, here I was singing in the opera and doing all sorts of crazy crap on television. And he would turn the TV on and see me and shake his head and like, you know, throw a Budweiser. You know, 
<laughs> so my mother, so my, my mother offspring. calls me. <laughs> my my mother calls me. I'm sitting there at QVC, and she says, "Michael, your 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 grandfather's not doing well." And I just think it would be terrific if before he dies, he could turn on the television and see you doing something that looked like work. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's and so, God bless I'm like, her. Jesus. <clears throat> my mom killed me. So they don't pull any punches, moms. Yeah. Yeah. No, she, she, she always called it the way it was. And, and of course she was right. And I thought, you know, I was hosting this show at the time called evening magazine. And I went to my boss and I said, look, why does this show always have to come from, you know, a winery or a theater or some San Francisco hotspot? Why can't it come from a, a factory floor or a construction site or a sewer, you know? And my boss is like, look, nobody's watching the damn show. Do whatever you want. So I said, great. <laughs> and that's why I wound up over at Grumpy's drinking draft beer, writing up the treatment for dirty jobs. Wow. And to answer your oh. question, honestly, the hardest thing I ever did was getting dirty jobs on the air because, you know, uh, I got a pilot on the little show at CBS that I was doing and uh, they fired me the next day. Because <laughs> the, whole, the whole thing the whole thing took place in a sewer. You know, I, I mean, I, I literally dragged the viewer through a sewer in San Francisco with a, with a sewer inspector, you know, replacing bricks. And we were just covered with tampons and condoms and crap. <laughs> and it was just oh. a, the whole place. It was like a German porno. You know, I mean, it was, all, it was just it was awful. Sounds like bliss. But it was really fun. It was, I mean, it was fun, and the guy was great, and uh, I thought it was great TV, but CBS fired me, and I spent the next year taking the footage of me in a sewer around Hollywood and hearing no in every imaginable way from every network. You know, it was too gross for uh, PBS. It wasn't gross enough for Fox. It was too funny for NBC, not funny enough for Comedy Central. I mean, nobody wanted this thing. And uh, by the time I finally got to Discovery, they didn't want it either, but they, they ordered three hours to kind of hold together uh, a larger uh, relationship right. that, that they were interested in pursuing. But, but getting dirty jobs mm. on the air uh, forced me to really become something else. Rather than a host, I had to become a um, really kind of a guest, to be honest with you. Right. And after... Mm. After impersonating a host for 15 years, suddenly I was realizing that the key to that show working was humility, and I had completely. To, I had to let I had to let the experts truly be the experts. I had to not be wary of. I had to let it go. You know, I had to let all that earnestness go. I had to let all of the fakery go. And you know, I told Discovery, look, I don't. I don't want to do a show with second takes. I don't want writers. I don't want producers. I want a crew that goes with me into the opal mine, into the sewer. I want, I want it to be as honest as we can, you know? And so we wound up hiring a documentary camera that essentially chronicled the making of that show. Wow. So, you know, to, to, to finally unlock that whole thing, was a lot like eating a Maryland blue crab. You know, right. you had to you, you had to embrace a certain level of pain. You had to do everything differently than you were used to doing it. And ultimately, you know, I 
I had to admit that everything I thought I knew about my own industry, you know, hosting TV shows was wrong. Uh, Dirty Jobs, aside from being, a, you know, a complete spectacle, was also a really, really honest look at the way a lot of people earn a living. And it was packed with uh, not just lessons, but the Greeks call it a peripatia. You know, it's like mm-hmm. it's the moment in um, in Oedipus Rex, for instance, uh, when Oedipus realizes, you know, the woman he's been having children with and sleeping with is his mother. Um. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> Big it's moment. A, it's a realization that, that, that changes the course of the narrative, mm-hmm. you know, and I know a lot of guys in the service who, who always want to talk to me about their own peripatetic moments right. when they realized, shit, you know something, I, I was so sure, and now I'm so wrong. It's like that moment in the sixth sense. Remember Bruce Willis, Mm -hmm. right? So in the beginning, you know, he's introduced to Cole and Cole is obviously mentally troubled. He's a little kid who sees dead people. And along the way, Bruce Willis starts to realize, you know, this kid might not be crazy. And by the end, he realizes he's absolutely not crazy. And he knows that because he's He's dead. dead. Yeah, he's been wow. dead the whole damn movie, right? Wow, absolutely. So, great when, twist, by the way, in that movie. It was awesome. Yeah. It, was, mm. it, was, it was awesome. All great, all great literature, all great stories have a moment where the protagonist realizes everything he thought he knew Is was wrong. wrong. You know, Aristotle said the. You know, the very definition of tragedy is that moment when the protagonist comes face to face with the undeniable truth of his own identity, and so. The business of never quitting, you know, to me, you know, it's, it's always an on, it has to be an honest search for what it is you've gotten wrong. And, uh, beautiful. Plus it's fun. Beautifully put. What I love most about Uh, the discovery of yourself. Yeah. Right. Marcus, Mm -hmm. it is. It's, it's that awakening saying, man, I, I, well, what I what I thought I know, it doesn't exist, and now I'm beginning to know. But the even better is what propels you to then begin the true search for information, <laughs> right? The, and that's yeah. what life is about, is seeking the truth, you know, understanding what, what, why am I here and what purpose do I serve. My favorite aspect of Dirty Jobs, when I because I was a fan from, from the beginning, is how we got to know the people that were the specialists. And I think it had, tell us, did it happen right off the bat that you recognized that that was the beautiful aspect of the show was these people and, and, yeah. and that that was the focus? Well, getting the focus off of me and onto the unpredictable was the hard thing because look, TV is a very, uh, it's a very derivative business. You know, executives and producers, they don't greenlight shows that they don't understand. Right. And they don't understand shows that they haven't already seen. Mm-hmm. So there was nothing on the air like Dirty Jobs in 2001. There was no real reality TV except Survivor, and that, yep. that wasn't necessarily real. So the idea of going into a sewer with a crew and pointing the cameras at somebody who had never been on TV before you know, we went to towns you can't find on maps <laughs> to interview people you didn't know existed who did jobs you didn't know were around. Wow. And, you know, to come out of the gate with the opposite of celebrity, that was scary for producers. And to 
and, and to get people to genuinely trust you, there's just, you can't cheat, you know, you have to do the work. And that was the real son of a bitch for me in, in dirty jobs, you know, because my, my whole industry is based on cheating. Right. But on that show, I couldn't do it. I had to try and I, and I, and I had to fail. So ultimately the reason it worked is the viewer got to see me in a kind of groundhog day uh, <laughs> moment. Right. 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 Like, every huh. episode is my first day on the job and the your job misery, is, your pain, right? Yes. That's it. Yep. That's it. But, and this to me was the beautiful part of the show. The, uh, the people that we profiled nine out of 10 times were doing jobs that we grew up thinking were things to avoid. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a, it's a great moment when, you know, when a family sits down to watch a TV show and sees people, people doing something truly difficult, dangerous, or distasteful while they're laughing. Yeah. And this is the thing that made people's heads explode. They just didn't talk about cognitive dissonance, right? Right. Why is everybody on dirty jobs having so much fun? What, <laughs> what do they know that we don't, or what do they know that we've forgotten? And the truth is guys, it's, you know, it's probably a question you've had too. You know, why, why do people, want to be Navy SEALs. I mean, beyond patriotism or service, what is it in some people that, you know, allows them to want to push themselves into a place of willful discomfort? Why do people line up on the docks in Dutch Harbor right now as we speak for a shot at being a greenhorn on a crab boat? When the odds are pretty good, they're going to get a finger torn out, maybe make no money at all, or die. maybe die. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, to... To let those kinds of people have 30 minutes of unscripted content on a show that airs in 220 countries uh, and be okay with the fact that we don't know how it's going to end, that was a very, very, very difficult sell. But once we did it, once we got it out there, um, well... I mean, it changed TV. It you know, literally That show did. went from... I mean, there, there are 30... 33 shows that evolved out of dirty jobs. And, uh, wow. you know, I don't want, I don't want the credit or the blame for any of them, but, <laughs> but to get something on the air that was utterly new, I think I'm probably still answering your first question and I'm sorry about that. No, but, no, but, it's uh, relevant. Uh, it's all relevant. What, what kind of observations did you after all of these job experiences? Why were they, why were they, why happier? were they happier? <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, I hate to generalize, but, you know, I have to, um, in general, mm -hmm. I think, uh, I think job satisfaction today, um, has really been turned, uh, inside out. Right. I don't think people understand what it is, but hmm. I know that most of the dirty jobbers I met, uh, took a lot of satisfaction in the, in the, in the fact that they always knew how they were doing, right. You could stop them at, you know, 10 in the morning, two in the afternoon, didn't matter. But the nature of that kind of work gives you constant feedback, right? It's the difference between being at a desk or, or being on a mission, being in the field mm -hmm. or, you know, being back at HQ, your desk, you know, most people's desks look a lot 
they look the same at the end of the day as they do at the beginning. Right. So mm-hmm. you don't have like a big obvious visual cue as to how you're doing. But if you're digging an opal mine, or if you're repairing and replacing bricks in a sewer, or if you're uh, you, just, you can just go down the list. Right. If you're building a bridge, if you're welding, you know, task-oriented jobs have a way of constantly informing you about your progress. And people need to know how they're doing. But so much of what passes for work today doesn't come with that particular mm. element. Wow. So, you know, that was a big part That's of it. But, but, but the even bigger part has to do with passion. Yes. Um, yes. You know, we we tell kids today, you know, to follow your passion. You know, follow your passion, and and we tell them that because passion is important. But dirty jobbers, interestingly, uh, by and large, were all very passionate about their work, but they didn't follow their passion to their job. They took it with them. Yeah. Like I knew this. I met a guy mm. in in Wisconsin years ago, Les Swanson from Wisconsin. <laughs> he was a septic tank cleaner. <laughs> You know, he was, uh, he was 50, 58, 59 when I met him. It was 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, he's one of these guys. He's got four honey wagons, a dozen employees, and he drives around cleaning the pumping stations on sides of roads. Most people they don't know what these things are. They look just like little innocuous buildings. But you go through a door, and then you go through another door, and then you go down some stairs, and you are in <laughs> the pit, a, a pit of hell. Dante's Inferno. <laughs> Dude, it, it's truly seventh level stuff, you know. And you're, and I'm down there with Les. It's 110. We're knocking cholesterol off the walls with shovels, standing up to our nipples and other people's crap. And <sighs> wow. And I said, "Dude, you know, what happened to you? How'd you get here?" And he's like, "Well." You know, my other job wasn't working for me. I wanted to try something else. I said, well, well what were you doing? And he said, I was a, uh, I was a psychiatrist. And no. You've got to be kidding me. And I said, why'd you quit? You know, and without, meeting a, without missing a beat, sweat running down his face, Les looks at me and says, because I was tired of dealing with other people's shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you know, ha ha, it was very funny. You know, we had a great laugh, but I said, you know, Keep going. I, I'm serious. I want to understand. I'm basically asking him the same question you're asking me, right? right? Except we're on we're on mm-hmm. TV. Yeah. And he says, "Listen, I I looked for I didn't look for a job to make me happy. I looked to see where everybody was going. What direction is everyone headed? And I went in the opposite direction. And nobody wants to do what I'm doing, but I'm making three hundred grand a year." Wow. I have half a dozen employees. I got a summer home. I got a margarita machine by my pool, which he does. He took me there <laughs> later that same day. But, you know, to have a guy basically say, listen, your your job satisfaction can't be the thing that drives you to your wish fulfillment. The thing that drives you should be the existence of opportunity. Once you identify that opportunity, now it's incumbent upon you to figure out how to be great at it. Then it's incumbent upon you to figure out a way to love it. And if you can do that, if you can turn opportunity inside out and look at, if you can bring your passion with you, no matter what it is you do, then you're going to be passionate. (laughs) But if you Hmm. tell yourself, like so many kids today, you know, they go to college because they've been told, here's what you need to do. You need to borrow the money. You need to get the degree. You need to identify the thing you want to do with the rest of your life. And then you're going to spend years 
doing all of the things you have mm. to do in order to allow yourself to be happy on a job that probably won't even exist by the time you get qualified to do it. Totally. So, mm. you know, the biggest lesson of dirty jobs was turning the stereotypes and the, uh, and the misperceptions and the myths about the basic reality of work, you know, turning that inside out and challenging them every night on a, on an oil derrick or in a bituminous coal mine or an opal mine or a sewer or any of the other places we went, that was, that, that really was a privilege. And, uh, and to this day, it's the best thing I've done. Wow. Wow. That's brilliant. What interesting insight. Lens credence and how good you are at what you do because I, I didn't put it together at first, but you're right. You didn't know how people were going to react when you put them on, on the spot, right? When they're the important one, because just look what happens when you're at a football game or a basketball game and somebody sees themselves on a jumbotron. It's either shooting the finger or freaking out or they just stall in the door. Whatever, whatever happens when a camera lens turns on somebody, everything goes wash, right? But you, yeah. The way you got around that is you take, put them in their environment because work brings us That's all together. Exactly right. There is satisfaction in doing something nobody else wants to do. We we did that for a living. Yeah, we did. I mean, that's kind of Dude, the prideful that's your life. part. Yeah, that's the prideful part about it. I was like, why do you do this? Because nobody else can. It sure wasn't the $32,000 a yeah. year I was making. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, it, it, yeah. <laughs> Some people you talk to, oh, if it's, they got a big family or if it's whatever their hobby are, that's what drives them. So they're passionate no matter what they're doing, if, as long as it enables them to do what they love. It's look. It's called dignity, and it's called purpose. Nice. You know, you guys, mm -hmm. whether they're paying you thirty-two grand a year or three hundred twenty grand a year, you know, the it, meaningful work, purposeful work. You know, the other thing, you know, to keep answering your first question, what do these people know? Um, they know that sewer inspectors, electricians, plumbers, you know, they know if they all call in sick for a week, the party's over. You know, right. they know the same thing you guys know, you know, there, there are a lot of jobs that could go away for a week, a month, maybe forever. And, you know, life goes on. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like the, uh, I call it the, uh, it's a wonderful life effect. Yeah. You know, you have to look at people's vocations in terms of what the world would be like, um, if they didn't exist. And, you know, that's why the war on work is so insidious and so, and so nuts, you know, the, the jobs that we rely upon the most as a society are the same jobs we disparage routinely. I don't have to tell you guys, so yeah. one and a half percent of the population wears a uniform, uh, one and a half percent of the population feed 300 million people three times a day, but right. we don't aspire to be farmers. We don't encourage our kids uh, to enlist. We don't encourage them to learn uh, a useful skill. We encourage them uh, to borrow as much money as possible uh, to go to an expensive school to learn something that, while it might be gratifying, is not necessarily going to be useful. <laughs> and so you, we've We've created for ourselves a huge set of problems. Yes, we have. Hmm. Well, Mike, what I want to pivot a little bit, and because obviously you have this, you know, you know, incredible success with 
with 30 jobs. And, and as your career has evolved, it got you into all different types. But what I'm seeing now with where you're at and moving towards, you still got somebody's got to do it, which is, I, I think, you know, the core root of, of what that means. Um, but, you know, you started the way I heard it, which, you know, is crazy with just uh, your hundredth episode is coming up here. You got 60 million downloads, which is insane. And then you've got the other show returning the favor. Those are three very different approaches to be bringing a different perspective to people. Why the divergence away from the main focus or what about you and your life and your career that you learned from all the other stuff that you're trying to implement now with what you're doing? It's kind of, they, they all lead to the same place, right? Yep. I, mean, I, I hate to, uh, I hate to rip myself off and do the same thing over and over. So I always try and, and, and change the, uh, the angle of attack, if you will, but but some things you can't change. You know, I'll I, I'll never do a show, for instance, that doesn't incorporate the documentary camera that we used in Dirty Jobs. In other words, somebody's got to do it. Dirty Jobs uh, and Returning the Favor all have they all show the viewer what it looks like to make that particular show. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So returning the favor is basically a rumination on decency. Dirty jobs was a rumination on work. Somebody's got to do it was a rumination on passion and purpose. Um, but, and the way I heard it, you know, it was just a podcast that I write, uh, classic storytelling, Paul Harvey type stuff. Right. Um, about biography and history that I think gets lost and I think people might enjoy. But in the end, Super if you peel back the onion layers, it's all, all, all I do, I'm 56 years old, and I, it, it, it occurred to me the other day, for, for the last 20 years, I have been doing the same show in the sense that my job is to tap the country on the shoulder and say, hey, check him out or get a load of her. Or wait till you see what they're doing over here. I'm. Uh, it still goes back to the first lesson of Dirty Jobs: stop being a host and start being an avatar or a cipher, right? Yeah. You know. So I don't. I don't really do anything, guys. Except, <laughs> what is, what except. would you say you do here? <laughs> I'm a people person, damn it. I t- <laughs> what would you say you do here? <laughs> oh, my God. Greatest movie I ever. I mean, look, you, so one of you guys said it before, David. I think it was you. You said, you know, the business of seeking knowledge, the business of seeking understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the thing. It's not finding it. It's seeking it. That's the, that's the journey. That's the, you know, dirty jobs was the Rosetta stone of TV for me because it unlocked this idea that said, wait a second, what if I stop measuring myself by my ability to, to succeed or, or master a thing and turn it around so I get paid for merely trying, right? right. It, it's kind of a, a fatalistic way to look at life in a sense, but on the other hand, it's just TV. And if I could figure out a way 
to host a show where I'm not going to be criticized for my technique or criticized for failing, but only held to a standard of seeking or attempting, you know, that, that was good for me. So that's just a very long way right. of saying that what I do is manage expectations. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I think that it's very humble in, in, in a sort of way, almost a self-deprecating presentation there, but you are definitely filling a role out there. I mean, people don't get uh, invited to testify, for example, before the, a Senate committee for no reason at all. Um, you used a term a minute ago, and just slightly shift gears, uh, war on work. Is that, mm-hmm. Did I hear you correctly? Can you That's fair. explain what you mean by that? Well, it's a cold war, you know, when people aren't, you know, affirmatively, you know, sitting down and, you know, twirling their mustaches and laughing maniacally at some <laughs> giant plan to, uh, to destroy the Puritan work ethic. Um, but over the last 40 years, that it's happened. You know, you can see it in pop culture. You can look around at the most successful TV shows and see the portrayals of working people. I mean, if there's a plumber on a show, five will get you 20 that he's 300 pounds, you know, with a butt crack hanging out, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's what plumbers look like on TV. Um, the best-selling books, you know, uh, are the four-hour work week, right? You know, how to, how to work less and achieve more. So there's nothing wrong with efficiency. I'm a big fan of it, but I'm a bigger fan of effectiveness. And I think that well put. we've fallen in love with efficiency to the point that it's like the old platitude, work smart, not hard. What a, what a crock. Right. You know? I mean, <laughs> working smart and working hard are the underpinnings of mm. effectiveness. Working smart without working hard is you know, essentially a robot. Impedes uh, uh, human performance. I mean, kind of get... Yeah. Well, Huxley, right? Yeah. In Brave New World, Huxley said the greatest uh, enemy of freedom is anarchy, but the second greatest enemy is efficiency. Right. And, um, you know, mm. I, again, I, I didn't think much about it when I read it. I was too young, but now it's like, holy crap. You know, Big. if you take efficiency to its logical conclusion, who needs humans? Well, artificial intelligence, there's a big horizon coming up with uh, artificial intelligence and what's going to happen with that. Yeah, people are scared because, you know, the the further we get from traditional notions of work, uh, the more untethered we become from uh, meaningful labor. Mm-hmm. And so the war on work, as I perceived it, really came down to the perceptions and stereotypes that people held for the dirty jobbers that I featured on the show. Right. And, you know, debunking those myths uh, is the purpose of the foundation that evolved out of dirty jobs that I run to this day. You know, that's why I go to Congress. That's why I talk to companies large and small, Mm -hmm. because companies are failing uh, to uh, effectively recruit. They're just not sure how to do it anymore. Look, we got we got Mm six point three million jobs available right now. Seventy five percent of them don't require a four year degree. They require training. They require uh, the mastery of a skill that's in demand. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. you got $1.5 trillion in student loans currently on the books, and you've got millions of college graduates 
who are perfectly trained for jobs that don't exist anymore. So the infrastructure is falling down, and we, we just aren't quite sure why there are these massive shortages in these really, really important areas. Uh, but there, it's true. There's just, there's just no getting around it. If the, the, the construction industry is so far back on its heels right now, they just can't find people who are willing to show up early, stay late, learn a useful skill, uh, and, and then move up the ladder. So it's a problem, and uh, it's not going to get better by, uh, by accident. We have to do something. One of the things, one of the things that I truly love about, you know, what what helps bringing the message, right? You're bringing the that's your job. You bringing the narrative of the importance of these things to people around the the world, literally. What about the people? Like, let's let's just take it. Let's whittle it down back to the core of what our show is about. Can you do you remember some great never quit stories about the people you've interviewed, like wherever, uh, you know, in whatever job that they were down and out, they were almost gone, they were almost done, and they found something that got that gave them that purpose? Would you share maybe one great or two great ones that you remember? I'll give you, I mean, look, I can give you 300, but I'll give you two yeah. terrific ones. Perfect. Um, Imagine you can. There was a guy called Matt Freund who had a dairy farm in New Canaan up in uh, Connecticut. He had a couple hundred head of cattle, and um, this was been 2004, I guess. And um, he was struggling. The, the price of milk uh, was not favorable. The cost of running the farm was exorbitant. And he was uh, slowly going a little further under uh, every month. And, uh, you know, he's raising a family. And it's, it's, it's very difficult to pivot when you're a farmer. Yeah. You know, you're, you're beholden to the land. You're beholden to your livestock. And uh, in this case, you're beholden to the price of milk and cheese, both of which were not good. So Matt, um, being kind of a mad scientist, figured out, uh, a device, a, a digester, and a fixed film reactor that essentially let him heat his house uh, with cow shit. And, uh, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely brilliant, brilliant, right? but, brilliant. You know, so, so, so he starts he starts saving money um, in a in a very practical way. But then he's out uh, mowing his lawn and trimming the hedges and stuff, and uh, you know the fertilizer he'd been using all that all that cow crap was was really uh, working wonderfully you know his garden was going crazy so he thought you know and and this is like i don't have this chip i don't have this it's this is just not in my makeup but it would never occur to me uh to ask the question that he asked which was wait a minute these flower pots that you can buy at at walmart you know they're 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 made of cardboard but what if what if they were made of cow shit like what if you put dirt in a flower pot that was made of high octane fertilizer and that began to biodegrade oh. into the dirt itself, would that help your plants grow? Well, the answer is hell yeah. Wow. So long story short, Matt Freund woke up one morning and realized um, the milk from his cows was less valuable than their shit. <laughs> and he built an entire business making these he called them poo pots, <laughs> and 
like when I heard about this story from a neighbor of his, I took the crew and we went over there to spend a day with Matt making these poo pots. Uh, that show went on the air. Um, somebody at Walmart saw it and uh, Matt made a deal. Matt's doing just fine now. Wow. But he had, he had to think, <laughs> he had to think completely differently about who he was, about what his business really was and who his customer actually was. So, you know, if you're, if you're able to do that, if you're, if you're able to step completely outside of yourself and take the temperature of the room in a non-traditional way, uh, you might find a way out of virtually any problem. Wow. That's amazing. What a great story. <laughs> yeah, right. What a, an no. incredible story. Yeah, brother, you really, I mean, it's kind of the center of the hourglass when it comes to the people who watch and the people who work. I mean, it's like an insight nobody has, or very few people have over the years just getting in the, in the trenches with, uh, with everybody, man. It's, uh, it's enlightening, I would imagine, just from what we do or what I do, you get to travel around and retina and speaking and getting to hang out with everybody, everybody all walks of Dude, life. Are you kidding? It's, it, it's, it is access. You know, I, I took it for granted early on, but, but access is the thing yes. you know, to bear witness, you know, for the 130 job, um, we went, uh, I mean, look, I'm a, obviously a fan of, of what you guys do. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of the, of, of the armed forces. And I wanted the hundredth job to be, to be army. You know, I just thought, why not? So we right. went to Fort Jackson down mm -hmm. there in the, one of the Carolinas, North Carolina, I think 187th battalion, um, fixed wheel battalion, you know, the, basically the mechanics, yep. uh, you know, who can change your tire while they're getting shot at. <laughs> so I mean, I've, I've profiled, you know, the army, the Seabees, those, uh, those guys, are great. Uh, construct, we build, construction we workers, we build, <laughs> right. Um, yeah, they make war tolerable, man. Yeah. I mean, it's so, so, so to have access, you know, to have a couple of, uh, you know, air force guys, take me into a KC-135 R, you know, the strato tanker to replace a fuel cell in a possibly cramped place covered with high octane fuel. It, 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 it wasn't on my bucket list, but having done it, I would have, I would not trade that experience for anything, you know, cleaning hmm. the inside of buoys, you know, the buoy tenders for the coast guard. Those guys, I mean, you know, the, the access is, is truly the gift of that show. And you're right, Marcus. I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd uh, how many opportunities I've had to to watch people who are truly great at what they do and learn from them. Um, oh, that, you get to do what? stuff. Money, it's not a money can't buy it. Yeah, there's not enough money to they can pay. I mean, when you get in there and you and you get to experience everybody's life on their level and they're willing to share that with you because you're willing to get in there and work with them or bleed for them like we do. That's and that's kind of the American dream, in my opinion. That's the reward. It's it's something that you hear about, people talking about, and and that's why people come here. But when you finally get a chance to see it, it man, it's mind blowing. It's humbling. I look for big themes, right? So so dirty jobs, like I said, was fundamentally about work. Um, returning the favor is is fundamentally about decency, and you know I'm wary of all earnestness, right? So I don't want to do an earnest show, but I do want to do a show that elevates and celebrates and rewards the kind of behavior I think we all like to encourage. My newsfeed mm. on Facebook is just a 
hot mess of you know angry people unfriending <laughs> each other and oh, bitching about everything in the world. It's you know? crazy. Cape, it's crazy. Cable news would depress a hyena. You know, I mean, it's just everybody's <laughs> their veins are bulging and the spits flying through the air, and everybody's so pissed off about everything. So I said to Facebook, "Look, let's let's do a really simple show where we find people slightly better than you or I, and uh, let's let's get to know them." Let's understand what they're doing, and then let's give them something that allows them to do more of it. So that's what Returning the Favor is. It's been viewed 300 million times so far. We've done 30 episodes. It's working. Awesome. So having said all that, you know, the first thing I wanted to do in that show was go back to the military. Found a guy in uh, Crown Point, Indiana, named Jason uh, Zedeman, who was doing something called uh, Hot Rod Therapy. He was taking guys with PTSD and uh, repairing old motorcycles and having enormous success, you know, getting them out of their heads a little bit, focused on something else, you know, that task-driven, yep. you know, right? Mission and, orientation. Um, mission oriented. That, that's exactly right. And so uh, the thing is, though, Jason doesn't know his ass from a hot rock when it comes to <laughs> fixing motorcycles. It's hysterical. So, so he's learning as he goes. He's, he's literally watching YouTube videos with these guys, and they're rehabbing old bikes. So that was the first segment we did, and it, it, was, it went so well that I said to the producers, look, I'm, I want to go back and do something with the military at least every third or fourth episode, wow. which we've done. Like we've done, uh, you know, the, the Semper Canine, which trains dogs, yep. you know, for uh, service dogs for vets. Uh, but Travis was my favorite. Yeah. Travis Mills uh, has a retreat that he built up in Maine. Uh, if your if your listeners don't know, um, back in 2000, whatever it was, Trav put his backpack down on a uh, on a bomb. It blew up. Um, both legs, uh, and both, he was, I think maybe the first quadruple amputee, right. uh, to make it back. And, um, he clawed his way back in ways that I just, you know, his book, I, I think it's called as tough as they come. Yep. He's the ultimate never quit guy. If you That's haven't remarkable. had him on, you really should. Oh, I've reached He's, out like 10 times and I'm going to keep reaching out. He's amazing. You know what? I'll send him a note. Too, oh, because, Mike, I mean, that would be awesome. He, he's busy, and what he's doing up there in Maine is freaking incredible, man. He's he's He basically uh, <laughs> raised enough money through his foundation, bought a chunk of land with this old estate on it, like the Estee Lauder estate, <laughs> and he's opened it up to vets in his exact same position and their families, right? Because so often the families yep. get arbitraged out of the whole equation. So, mm. you know, his, his wife stood by him and, and he really wanted to do something for the families of vets who were, you know, clawing their way back. So we went up there and built a ropes course. Uh, wow. we, we got him out of town for a night or two and, and, and built this very elaborate, uh, ropes course that was, you know, a couple stories high because he really wants to challenge people to, you know, push themselves, get out of their comfort zone. And, um, you know, I knew Travis from the old days and, uh, he saw the course and he started crying and I started crying and we started laughing because we're, you know, what the hell would a bunch of pussies crying like this on <laughs> Facebook? But you know what? It, it, it was just a great story. And, uh, yeah. you know, 
10 million people saw it. It's my and, favorite. And now his, it, it's, it's actually moving the needle. Um, which again, is just a very long way of saying, uh, the stories are all around us. Yes. You know, whether you're in a podcast or the TV show or a Facebook show, uh, searching for real authentic people who are passionate about whatever it is they're doing and determined to make a difference along the way that that's what's for sale. And Travis Mills wrote the book on it. Amen. Well, before we wrap up, uh, I just, we always ask our guests and, you know, you, you have such a profound insight on, on not only hard work, but the, the human condition itself in terms of all your, 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 quest to try and understand that right what what could you share with the people that are listening right now that are struggling that that are challenged that are maybe in that dark space a little bit don't know what to do or or where to go where to turn to what could you offer them that could be that little spark that just gets them back in the fight a little bit look i to me they're there, there are two really important groups of people. There's the group of people you just described, and they need they need a hand. They need encouragement, right? Mm-hmm. But there's a larger group, and and that group is as important because they're not they're not down and they're not out, but they're not in either. They're not engaged. Mm-hmm. They're not they're not present. Right. They're they're stumbling through their life. They're not miserable, but they're just not really alive. And, and those are the people that I'm, I mean, I'm interested in both groups, obviously, but I feel like I'm in a position to maybe make a difference uh, with that group. And to the extent that my shows have a, have a, a, a recurring theme, I think it's probably uh, – to look around and find the uncomfortable thing and then do it. Wow. The the way out is almost never comfortable. You should be very, you should be very suspicious of comfort. You should be very suspicious of earnestness. You should be very suspicious, you know, counterintuitively of advice. It's the easiest thing in the world to give. And that's why I, I try not to, to give it in, in terms of, hey, let me tell you what I've figured out. Here's what you need to do. <laughs> Who the hell am I? I don't know what you need to do. You know? I mean, the, I don't know. But I'll tell you something. There's most good advice turns to shit over time because good advice becomes homogenized. Homogenization right. leads to platitudes. Platitudes become bromides. And before you know it, good advice winds up in these cheap frames nailed to the rooms of conference halls all over corporate America. (laughs) And so the next thing you know, you know, you're, you're looking at something that says, always follow your passion. And it's a picture of like a waterfall and some asshole in a kayak, you know, paddling along. There's a rainbow and then there's a freaking unicorn. And I don't know what any of it means, but the next thing you know, you're telling your kids, son, you get out there, you follow your passion. Well, bull crap. You don't follow your passion. You take it with, with you. you, you know? And, and so it's so easy to take kernels of knowledge and then put them in a frame 
or between two hardback covers and say, aha, we have the answer for you. And then we just vomit all that stuff up, you know, like one size fits all. It doesn't. You know, there, there, there are very few things that truly can be said that apply to everyone under the rubric of good advice. And so I'm stingy with it, but I'm comfortable Mm. saying if it's comfortable, be suspicious. If, if it's earnest, somebody's selling you something. If it hurts, you might be onto something, right? So, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a total contrarian about it, but if you look at the way our society uh, deals with safety, with you, when you look at the premium we put on safety, when you look at the way we've completely made risk the thing yes. to avoid, right? We've, we've just done so many things. I mean, why are we surprised that our universities are full of safe spaces? We've created the whole place is a safe space. You know, we've, we, we've just discouraged people uh, from, from putting real skin in the game. And mm-hmm. so, look, this, is, this has really been a fun conversation, but it's kind of a hot mess of things that keeps coming back around to the idea yep. um, that you have to be suspicious of the easy way. There are no shortcuts. Um, there's no way forward uh, without discomfort. And if you're in a place where you're feeling uncomfortable, don't, don't look at the discomfort as the enemy. Look at it as a symptom, um, hopefully something that you can use. And don't be afraid to admit that maybe everything you thought you knew was wrong. Have a peripatia, you know. Remember Matt Freund. He woke up one day and realized his shit was more valuable than his milk. That's a heck of a thing to realize when you're in the cow business. <laughs> that is a parapetia. Right. So anyway, there it is. Well, awesome. Wow. Awesome. Listen, sir, I, we, we can't thank you enough. Before you go, can you just touch real quick on your foundation and what you're trying to do and where people can go to apply and that sweat pledge you got. I just, I think it's genius. And I just would love if you could just touch real quick on that before we end it. Yeah. Look, my foundation's modest, you know, compared to big ones. Anyway, we give away six, $700,000 a year in the form of work ethic scholarships to get a work ethic scholarship you need to be willing to learn a skill that's actually in demand. Welding, plumbing, Mm. pipe fitting. If you go to uh, microworks.org, you can read about the the available programs. You can apply. We're in the midst right now of uh, taking applications and we'll uh, puke up the money probably in in June. Uh, We do this every year. We've given away about five million bucks so far. Um, I raise the money um, by going to corporations and, and making them feel guilty until they give me some. Um, sometimes, you know, I've auctioned off God knows how much crap in my garage, all of which comes with a weird story and an autograph, and people overpay for that. So the money comes from all sorts of different places, and uh, in order to get a scholarship, you need to you need to jump through some hoops, you know, you need to make a video, you need to write an essay, you need to sign the sweat pledge. The sweat pledge is a 12-point pledge that I wrote, I wrote man, probably seven years ago uh, 
after a six pack and, and Maryland blue crabs, funnily enough, <laughs> back in Baltimore, eating crabs with my dad and um, talking about delayed gratification and all the stuff I wanted to do with the foundation. And uh, with a slight buzz on, I sat down and wrote 12 things that I absolutely uh, believe to be true. And I really don't want to give money to people who don't agree with me. Um, I, I don't mind if you don't agree with me, but as I say to people every day, this particular pile of free money might not be for you. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so that's the way it works. You know, awesome. you, you sign the sweat pledge. I still think, uh, I, I still think a person's word is important. So, you know, it's, it, it's a pledge. It stands for skills and work ethic aren't taboo sweat. Uh, you sign it, you agree with it, you apply, and if it works out, we send you some money, and the next thing you know, uh, you're, you're making a living up in the high plains working on uh, heavy equipment or welding on an oil derrick down in the Gulf or, uh, or doing one of those dirty jobs that, uh, that really changed my career and uh, least I can do in the way of a legacy. I know that's kind of an earnest word, but you know, if dirty jobs has a legacy – uh, beyond my own good fortune, it's the uh, it's the chance to talk to guys like you and to uh, offer some help to people who still aren't afraid to get their hands dirty. Well, sir, your your words do have meaning, and more importantly, your actions and what you've done for most particularly our country and for just millions of souls out there, giving them that inspiration. Uh, we are just so proud and honored to have you on to share your story and, and your beliefs and God bless you and all that you're doing, Mike. Uh, we just can't thank you enough. Well, look, you, you, you humble me and even embarrass me a little bit because what you guys do and what your brothers and sisters in arms have done is, is the only thing that really matters. Every, every word I say, every thought I have, every freedom I enjoy, uh, was paid for dearly by the likes of you guys so many thanks to you as well and um we should do it again sometime we'd love it we'd love it fortunate to have guys like you out there mike likewise fellas keep charging forward brother yeah You're doing great likewise take right, care man, god well. bless yep. bye-bye yep. you too see you Marcus, brother, is that dude one of the coolest dudes you've ever heard in your whole life? You know, that zero to 40 opinion, 40 to 70 is perspective, and that's hopefully wisdom. Yeah. He got it early. He got it super early, didn't it? I mean, 300 dirty job shows. 300, bro. I mean, you think about the perspective he has, not only on work and what work means but what it takes to work the human condition oh man when you get out there and suffer with somebody no matter what the job is you kind of create that bond become a family i mean he's integrated into 300 different types of job descriptions you can't walk out of there without being changed right a little totally. bit taking something away from them the, the good, the good and the bad right and it just kind of molds you into what he is and he's so fluid in the way he talks about everything that you know it's genuine and uh, man that's that's a lifetime of diplomas on your back wall that great 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 visual man a lifetime else, you know I mean? of diplomas dude that's good that's good that is 
perfect. What I also love about the guy, right, is his, the, the, like you just touched on, he, the genuine thing he realizes not only about himself, but about what his mission is, what his purpose is, right, Wizard? is His purpose mm-hmm. is not to be famous, is not to be the center of attention. Exactly. I, what I really liked was he, is, he first found himself a niche and created it with dirty jobs, not knowing where it was going to carry him. And through that whole process, he builds this this appreciation goes to this metamorphosis of he discovers uh, an entire wealth of experience that he didn't even know was out there to appreciate in the first place. Yep. And, then, and shared it with right. all of us. And then he, appreci- he appreciates it, and then he uses it. He starts using it to affect change far greater than himself, far greater than his personal gain. Just, you know, am I going to have another TV show? Am I going to be popular? Is my Instagram feed going to grow by another X amount of viewers. Just so impressive in that way. Right? It doesn't, mm. the, it's not what's important. What's important to him is, is the, the stalwarts of what make people strong, right? Which is a work ethic, uh, a, a desire to improve their surroundings, uh, uh, humility, decency, these core foundations of what make America strong. What is grandfather taught him man that's what i love most about it right marcus man that passed down and uh, you know he's proud of him now heck yeah he is <laughs> heck yeah he is I like that being the trigger point in that whole story how he described that it'd be nice if he could see you actually what did he say it'd be nice do if he some could see you do some work do some work got that done bro oh man i love it and what and one other thing is, uh, at the end there, when he was talking about, he kind of distilled it down in the points of advice that you asked him about. And he says, if it's something that hurts, you might be onto something. You know, be suspicious of what's comfortable or taking shortcuts. And that reminded me of what, something, of what Dom Rosso said and what's become something that's stuck in my head since he said it, was that if he's confronted with a decision to make, and if he doesn't make it in the first five seconds, he just defaults to choosing whatever is less comfortable and the benefit of doing so. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. And, and that's that and in that lies this discovery. Right? And, and exactly. It, it takes it, you down roads you you never dream. Yeah, you don't know what you don't know. With almost absolute certainty because nobody else is gonna want to do it. Exactly. And, and what, if there is somebody who jumps down there with you. Strap on, yeah. hang on to them, man. That's, there you go. Uh, there's your new buddy. And that's your team <laughs> that's your to improve and grow with, man. God, there's so many lessons that this man can teach us or show us, right? I mean, and, and what I, I love is his humility, too. The guy is so well-read. He's so, he understands history. I mean, his podcast is remarkable, too. I love listening to that. You know, just his, his and in his commitment to not marginalizing what has built this country. And I love, so, you know, before we, we wrap things up, what I really want to do is I want to read that sweat pledge, right? Because I think it's more than just a scholarship, you know, within his foundation. If everybody, (laughs) if everybody Everybody? could, could sign the sweat pledge, we, we'd, we'd turn this thing around. Wouldn't we Marcus? That's good. Yeah, let's hear it. All right, here we go. Skill and work ethic aren't taboo. That's what the the acronym acronym. sweat, sweat means, right? Number one, I believe that I have won the greatest lottery of all time. 
I am alive, <laughs> right? I say that every day, right? <laughs> I'm above dirt. I am alive. I walk the earth. I live in America. Above all things, I am grateful. Number two, I believe that I am entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Nothing more. I also understand that happiness and the pursuit of happiness are not the same thing. Number three, Mm. I believe there is no such thing as a bad job. I believe that all jobs are opportunities, and it's up to me to make the best of them. Number four, I do not follow my passion. I bring it with me. I believe that any job can be done with passion and enthusiasm. Five, I deplore debt and do all I can to avoid it. I would rather live in a tent and eat beans than borrow money to pay for a lifestyle I can't afford. Six, I believe that my safety is my responsibility. I understand that being in compliance does not necessarily mean I am out of danger. Seven, I believe the best way to desist. I believe the best way to distinguish myself at work is to show up early, stay late, and cheerfully volunteer for every crappy task there is. Eight, I believe the most annoying sounds in the world are whining and complaining. I will never make them. (laughs) If I am unhappy at my work, I will either find a new job or find a way to be happy. Nine, I believe that my education is my responsibility and absolutely critical to my success. I am resolved to learn as much as I can from whatever source is available to me. I will never stop learning and understand that library cards are free. 10. I believe that I am a product of my choices, not my circumstances. I will never blame I will never blame anyone for my shortcomings or the challenges I face. And I will never accept the credit for something I didn't do. 11. I understand the world is not fair, and I am okay with that. I do not resent the success of others. 12. I believe that all people are created equal. I also believe that all people make choices. Some choose to be lazy, some choose to sleep in, I choose to work my butt off. Those are the 12 steps of the sweat pledge, baby. And boy, do I love Marcus. Are those awesome, dude? I, we need to go to Grumpy's, man. That was pretty profound. All right, and that happened. <laughs> Actually, he wrote that one eating crabs. He wrote the treatment for for dirty jobs and Grumpy's. Oh, that's right. I think we we need to make a trip. Either way, hey, I think you we go. I think the three of us go to Grumpy's and we come up the treatment for our job to go do the Never Quit TV show. What do you think, yeah, man? man? That- that was profound. It was. You ever wondered if you stand up and you give your word you're going to do something? If you ever what needed. To come behind that? Yeah. Pack those on. Amen. So stand tall. You will. Just kind of like some guidelines just to get through it. Those and are. Be successful. Be happy. <laughs> all that other <laughs> Pretty stuff. Pretty much all, all that, that other, other stuff. stuff. <laughs> yeah, that comes along with it. 
Well, that's all we got for this show, man. I am so fired up. That was one of my favorite all time. I am so thankful to to Mike for coming on and sharing his wisdom with us, sharing his life and his never quit mindset and story. Uh, I want to thank, man, our listeners. Thank you so much for believing in what we're doing, helping us do our part in, in sharing the human condition and what's possible within it with the world around us. I want to thank God and Christ for the influence in my life, my girls, the endless sunshine in my life. I want to thank my family and friends. I want to thank the SEAL teams, the SEAL teams for teaching me how to work and have a work ethic. And and gents, I want to thank you too because you know, you we're putting in the work to bring this show to millions of people. And I want to thank your commitment to me and to our listeners and to what we're doing here. I couldn't do it without you too. So thank you, gents. Right back at you, bud. Again, Mike, thanks for coming on. That was that was amazing. I learned a lot from that one, and I know everybody else will. It's this is so unique in in the way you've achieved all of that perspective. I'm kind of down in the trenches. A lot of people can uh, can relate to that, man. It's giving them a path. Center of the hourglass. I'm looking through both sides of it, man. That's that's really something. And to, you know, my mom and dad and my brother for giving me my work ethic. It's the one thing that's made me successful is my ability to work hard. So thank you for that and for everybody who keeps bringing us back. We, uh, we truly can't thank you enough, man. We just don't have the words. I'm out. Out.